All right, family, welcome again to another episode of Studio B. I am your host, Pastor NDH. Thank you so, so very much for joining us here again. Uh, make sure that wherever you're joining us at Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or YouTube, you like, subscribe, follow, and even comment uh, so that you don't miss one episode of what's going on here on the set of Studio B. I have in the studio today on set, I'm a very special person, uh, Miss Deborah E. Thomas. Uh, I'll give you a little bit of background about us for those who don't know. Let me just kind of start off with the obvious. Uh, this is my mother. This is the woman that birthed me into this world some 47 years ago. And uh, we've been having some conversations over the last few weeks, and I thought it would be very, very powerful for her to come on to the set of Studio B and share some of the experiences in life um, that God has allowed her to go through. Uh, many of you guys have heard my story before. I've talked about her um, at great lengths. Um, anytime that I teach and preach or uh, whatever the case, many people know my mom and have heard about our story. So I thought it would be beneficial to bring her on so that she can share some of this wisdom that God has allowed her to get in life. So let me just welcome to the set today, Ms. Deborah E. Thomas, my mother, how are you doing today? Actually, I'm doing very well. You're doing very well. She's a bit nervous, but she's going to be all right. <laughs> um, but I wanted to bring her on today to talk about some um, some issues and things that are going on in our world. As you guys have uh, heard me say on many of occasions, this is by far um, the strongest woman that I've ever known um, because I've seen her go through so many different things as a child growing up as a single parent and doing the absolute best that she could in order to make sure that I didn't miss anything in life. Um, I can remember very vividly, you know, one, two jobs of making sure that whatever my heart desired, uh, she would do her best in order to get um, what I needed and even more than just what I needed, what I wanted. So I have great, great admiration and respect for this woman more um, than I could possibly even communicate. This woman has been an absolute pillar in my life for the last 47 years. But she has some stories to tell uh, and some life lessons by which to share in which I have personally gleaned from over the years. And so I thought, I thought it beneficial for you to come on and share some of those life lessons. So my dear, tell me a little bit about, now I call her my dear. That's, that's my little uh, nickname for my mom is my dear. Um, so tell me a little bit about your life and your upbringing. Well, actually, I was raised with eight children, my, my mother and my father. When my parents separated, I think I was 11, but I had a real great foundation for life. My parents, my grandparents, I was raised in church. We always went to church, but, you know, in, in my house was a lot of love. My mama always taught us that the world could be against us, but our family was with us and we don't choose our family we have to just accept who they are so what was life like growing up with eight other siblings because my our grandma that's my grandmother um uh, um she had now you got you had you grew up with eight but she actually had 11 she had 11 i lost two brothers and a sister as infants. So you lost two brothers and a sister as an infant, so you grew up with eight, and you were the second oldest of the eight. No. No. I'm the fourth. You're the fourth oldest. I'm sorry, yeah. Because Charles is the oldest. Well, technically, my sister Mary was older than Charles. He's the li oldest living. The oldest living. And so what did life look like uh, kind of coming up in the day with uh, sharing the house with eight other people? When I grew up, we had a two-bedroom house where we slept crossways in the bed. Uh, it was four kids, pretty much in each bed. My parents had a room, all the kids shared a room, but we also had my grandmother who lived with us. So my grandmother, we made uh, like the den, I guess it was her room. And at night she slept in the daytime, that's where we played at. Uh, so the, your grandmother, that would be Big Mama? No, we call her Mama. Mom. She died in 64. So you had your mom, your dad, your Big Mother, and eight people living in a two-bedroom house. Yes. 
And so kind of growing up, and did you, what were some of the challenges that were presented um, in an environment like that? Well, see, I don't think we had challenges because I always thought we had money. I didn't know we were poor. My dad had a truck. He had a car. We had a nice house. We ate. Um, we didn't have my mom always took us to the stores. We always had nice clothes, but it was a hand-me-down. So one of the things I used to do as a child was try to stay small because my sisters were bigger than me, and I never wanted their clothes. So if I didn't get fat, I didn't have to wham. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's just them just being honest. But it was it was never a lot of confusion in our house. We... Uh, I grew up in the day where we had one TV, and we couldn't watch it all day. We could only watch it on Sunday nights, and we grew up watching Lawrence Welk with the little bubbles going up. And 99% of our time, we spent outside playing. Mm. We weren't house kids. We were outside kids. So in growing up in, 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 in that environment where you had to share the house with so many different people, um, knowing Ma the way that I do, um, Mo was one of these, and so to those that don't know, my mom is about what five ten, maybe about five ten. I'm five seven. Five seven. Dang, you look like five. Okay, <laughs> so my son is now just surpassed her, and Mo was about six one. Six one. Um, and how? I mean, how tall was a uh, granddad? Six five. So six five, six one. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I got to go back and look at a birth certificate or something. <laughs> but um, so growing up, you know, my, um, Grandma uh, Ma was um, a very, 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 very hard worker, um, and I've seen those traits have been instilled in you. And so, is that something that was always there, um, the working aspect of you? My mom always taught us that we, nothing in life was free. So any time you wanted to accumulate or get something, you had to work for it. And you had to understand no one gave you anything. You had to work for it. So, yeah, I never believed that I could just have something. I had to work for it. And so when you're looking at growing up um, with all of the intricacies of that many people in one house and all of the stuff that you had to go through. Kind of take us a little bit now. You are growing up. Um, what was school life like in, in that time? See, to me, when my dad, when I was young, my dad always told me that uh, your job in this life is to make your children's life better than I've made your life. So I was always interested in going to school. And the bad thing about growing up in a small town, the teachers knew your parents. So you couldn't go to school and act crazy because they would call your parents and they would be, well, they would kind of discipline you and then your parents would just. But I was always fascinated with education because books took me where I wanted to go. And I was a dreamer. I remember when I was probably about nine, my brother and I made a sailboat. We were going to sail away. And I was just following some of the dreams and stories I would read. So I was always a learner. I wanted to learn. I wanted to just, and I understood, especially when we came to Houston in 68, because when I first started school, I went through desegregation. I didn't know what it was like to be forced to leave a school that you were very comfortable and had to venture to a school where you were unwanted. So I had to learn to go through the school with my hands over my head to keep from being hit by uh, shovels, rocks, uh, dogs being sick on you. So that was different and that was hard. And then when I came to Houston, because I'm originally from Arkansas, I, uh, I remember the colored signs and whites only and this and that, and I, I just couldn't wrap my head around why we couldn't belong. So I would read about it, and education was always important to me. So Arkansas, um, so how do, we, how do we get to Sharino? My father is from Sharino. My grandmother was from Arkansas. 
So I guess in the transition, they left East Texas and went to Arkansas. So I spent probably the first six, seven years of my life in Arkansas. Then we came back to Nacogdoches, which is in East Texas, when my father's parents failed and they helped. He came back to, I guess, help with his family. Now, Granddad was in the Army, right? Is that right? He was in the Army. And so you came down to Houston in 68. Yes. Permanently. Permanent. Okay. And so when you kind of coming through, and this is a perfect segue to where we're going to try to get to on this podcast, because I've, I've had conversations with my mom at length, um, especially over this last year, the last couple of years with all of this, um, this environment that we find ourselves in now. And I have a direct source of somebody that has gone through segregation, that has gone through um, the rigors of racial injustice um, at a high level at a very, very high level. And so because I have somebody that I can glean from, and even with my grandmother, um, you know, you have people that went through the actual struggle of civil rights um, and bringing us from where we were to where we are right now. And so how has that, how has that shaped your views um, going through those particular struggles? How has that made you stronger? What kind of views has that given you in life? I think for me what it has always given me, I, I've, like I said, I've always been a dreamer. And in order to get to where that dream was taking me, I needed a door. And I've always, even when I started early in my career, I, I was always able to connect to someone to take me where I wanted to go. And back in the early 70s or whatever, people would consider that brown nosing. But I considered it an opportunity to go through that door. So a lot of times people would say, well, you know, you think you're all of that and you do No, I'm doing what I want to do to get to where I want to go. So now let me let me let me give this. My mother um, didn't give me excuses. I, I was not raised in a house where I could lean on excuses. It was get it done. This is the job. Make it happen, because that's kind of the way that I saw my mother operating. Um, all of my life. And so I didn't have um, these things by which to lean on. So if you failed in life, you need to look at what you did to cause you to fail, go back and fix it so that you don't fail again. That's kind of the environment that we grew up in. But coming up as a single mother, um, coming up and you had me when you were 16. Yes. 16 years old. Talk about, talk about what that was like um, having a child at 16 years old. I think for me, having a child, I don't, you know, a lot of people think it was this whirlwind romance. It wasn't. It was a wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, left you with a present. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also think what I really, what really helped me move beyond that was my dad always said, you can't make a man a man. A man has to be a man. So if something doesn't want you own up to what you've done take responsibility for what you've done and don't forget who you are and move forward so 16 uh, like I said I excelled in school Uh, the opportunities were there and I had to look at my life and realize that I had had gotten off gotten off track and how to get back on track. Well, the good thing, my mom, who worked days, was willing to switch her job and work nights to give me an opportunity to go to school and come home and take care of my son. Well, because I had so many people in the house, I understood I was bringing something in that needed to be fed and clothed and all of this, and I wasn't contributing to the financial end of the house. So when I was turned 17, I got my first job. And then I started providing the financial part that I thought would help my household. And my mom was real supportive. And when I graduated from high school, I graduated in the top of my class. I had a full scholarship to different places, but unfortunately I couldn't take those opportunities because I had a child. So I went to the University of Houston, and it wasn't easy, and I don't want to tell 
I don't want people to think it was a glamorous job. It wasn't. I worked at Church's Chicken. I would leave because I didn't have a car. I would leave home at 6.30 in the morning to catch a bus to go to school, go to school from 8 to 1, leave school, catch another bus to go to my job, get there from 3 to midnight, leave there, go home, catch another bus to get back home, study half the night. You waking up all times in the night, missing sleep, just and it was a vicious cycle, and it just seemed like it would never end. I didn't get an opportunity to go to the football games, parties. My life was taking care of you, and my mom didn't make it easy for me. So she wouldn't buy pampers. She had old cloth diapers that she would change during the day. And when I'd get home, the bucket of diapers would be there, and I'd have to wash them. So it was like, okay, I didn't think this through, and yeah. So (laughs) so it it was a learning curve. I mean, at 16, 17 years old, having to navigate through all those you know, adult decisions. One of the things my mom said for to me was, if I make it easy, you won't own what you've done. I have to make you understand what you gave up and what you have to do to prepare yourself to do for this child. So, yeah, she did not make it easy. So what was the relationship like? So at 17 years old, you got a brand new baby. Yeah, you're in school, you got a job, you got all these different responsibilities as a 17-year-old, so you can't enjoy life like a typical 17-year-old, so you're forced to kind of grow up very, very quickly. But what was that environment like in regards to, you know, processing through all of that? Was there some times in which you felt like giving up? Was there some times in which you said, okay, you know, what what did that process look like? I think for me it looked, it was very clear because I had so many people in my ear telling me, you can't do this, you can't do that, you're going to end up on welfare. They had pre-programmed my life. So me being hard-headed and me being this dreamer, I couldn't let the naysayers say what I would do. So a lot of it I did to show people that's not who I am. So I'm happy to say, because I just turned 63, I've never been on social assistance. I've never received anything from anyone. I've always worked to achieve what I wanted. Now, y'all heard that because that's where I get it from. <laughs> so when all the naysayers are saying that you can't do it, when people put a ceiling on you, um, you know, again, I come from the stock to where, you know, I just was not allowed to lean on excuses and what you couldn't do, I was forced, not forced, but I was encouraged to push your way through whatever situations that you may be presented with. And so as you're looking at a, as a single mother, um, now where did the father side of that go? Where, where, where was he at? You know, it's, like I said, it was a one-time thing. And, it, you know, you can be, when you're young and you really don't understand a lot of things and you've come from this environment where you thought life was good. You saw your parents, you saw your grandparents. So I came from this history of man and woman together, get together. And the reality realized, I didn't know what I was doing. It definitely wasn't love. And this person came into my life and he was gonna tell me how I was gonna do. And my mindset was, no, that's not what I'm gonna do. So. I didn't feel as though I needed to chase him. I didn't, I mean, I didn't just, I just simply said, this is not what I want. And I walked away. And so this is, as I look at um, our life growing up, and it's been me and my mother for 95% of my life, with the exception of having a couple of cousins live with us here and there. Uh, But it's been me and my mom for the majority of my life. And so I've been able to see my mom you know, struggle through life at times, you know, one job, two job. Um, I specifically remember in ninth grade in high school, we were uh, living off of 529 and I came home and you were in the bedroom 
and you said that uh, you had lost your job. And by the way, that's when I first learned to cut my hair because I was supposed <laughs> to get my hair cut that day. And instead, my mom went out to the store and bought me um, a pair of clippers and told me to get at it, learn it. And so I've been cutting my hair ever since ninth grade. So I've seen my mom come up through the uh, um, come up through the ranks. But one of the things that I admire about you, and I've shared this many times in a public forum, is that your your inability to give up, no matter how difficult it got, um, no matter how challenging it got, you would never, ever, ever give up. And then you wouldn't let me give up. So kind of talk about some of the things that it took for you to overcome those major obstacles in your life and get to a place to where you are now. Well, like I said, I was really influenced by my mom. And my mom would always say to me, you giving the people what people want. They don't want you to succeed. So just because you got knocked down, just because you got taken off the road you were on, Pick yourself up, stand yourself up, look up, because you can never find anything looking down. Shake yourself off and keep pushing. Now, that's kind of, that's you know, my dear, we, we hear that a lot, but isn't that sometimes kind of hard to digest when life keeps throwing you curveballs and you have to keep picking yourself up? Um, doesn't that make it kind of difficult to continue to go on? I think it makes it difficult if you don't buy into it. You could feel sorry for yourself. You could just say, well, I can't do that. But what happens when you do that, you lose who you are. So if you spent your life chasing these dreams and then you got on the wrong road, I didn't see the read. I would always see the sun rising. And my mom used to have this saying, even if it's raining, she promised me the sun was shining somewhere. So you couldn't see the sun if you just got bogged down in the rain. So my grandmother, uh, God rest her soul, God bless her, she went on to be with the Lord a couple of years ago um, in 2018, um, right after my brother passed and my uncle passed, right? So about like three to five months, um, we had a series of about three deaths, right, one right after another. And God um, took her home to, uh, to be with him. And I can specifically remember going up to Texarkana every single summer at 12 years old. My mom would, uh, as soon as school ended, the next day I would be at the Trailways bus stop downtown by 45, getting put on the bus by my mom to head down to Texarkana. It was the joys of my life. At 12 years old, I was taking a six-hour trip by myself to head to Texarkana and visit my grandmother every single uh, year. And so she was a, um, a dear person. But talk about some of the deep lessons that she instilled in you. I know you talk about that, but it's like when I started to accomplish things and when I started to get stable financially and I, she could see the growth she would say to me, I know you've done so much, you've done without. So when school is out, send him to me. <laughs> Enjoy. So I look forward to it. <laughs> yeah, you be, really look forward to because it. Because <laughs> for three months, I could just do me. Yeah. The <laughs> next day after school was over, I was on a trailways bus. <laughs> because it wasn't like my mom ever gave me that opportunity to just say, here, I got your baby, you do. But she, but she saw me struggle, and she would say, you know what? The day school is out, put him on the bus. I'll meet him at the bus station, and you can have some time to yourself. <laughs> so to me, that was like, okay, I can keep doing what I'm doing because I know the day they ring that bell, I'm going to ring it down to <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, that was one of the great, you know, because when I got to my grandmother's house and all of my cousins who are watching right now, everybody know this. My mama knows this. My grandmother's who's watching from Glory right now knows this. I was a favorite grandchild. <laughs> Um, so I absolutely enjoyed those times of going down to Texarkana for three months and, and being with my grandmother. She let me literally do what I wanted to do. She took me to work with her. I used to bust tables at the uh, restaurant that she used to waitress at. So we had a lot of bonding moments um, with my grandmother, and God bless her. I, I miss her dearly even to this day. But she was one of those ones that worked very, very hard. And so I can't exercise enough. Like when I came up, um, you know, my, my mom gave me everything that I could possibly want, but she didn't give me the off-the-hook option. 
And so you got to get this thing done. Okay, life done threw you a curveball. You didn't expect that. Now, what you going to do, decide what you're going to do and move on with it. So how has that benefited you as a 63-year-old woman right now? Are you still drawing from some of those life lessons even today? One of the things I understand and people need to understand, when you can own the mistakes, not blame other people for what you did, when you can look in the mirror and be comfortable with the person that looks back at you, knowing that a lot of things were thrown my way, I did, I struggled, I staggered, but I never gave up. So what gets me, you know, uh, I remember, like I said, I was raised in church. I wasn't given an option to go to church. And a lot of times in my younger years, I mean, I knew where the church was, and, you know, I used to always go to the church. But I, it was an incident that happened to me in 1992. Uh, I was young. Life was good. I got diagnosed with cancer. Now, I didn't share it with people. You were in the last year of high school. And I lost four, four hours of my life because I didn't understand. I, I even tried to convince the doctor to tell me I had something else. During that same week, I had a car, and I had put the car in the shop, and I had taken the car out of the shop. And I had spent over $4,000 to get that car in the shop. But I was going to work on 59. And as I was traveling 59 and the heat of traffic, I was in the left lane. My car stopped, and I had just picked it up that morning. It, and I know it was dead because every light on in that dashboard came on. But somehow my car just maneuvered across the street, and I remember exiting on Greenbrier, and there was a Texaco station. I don't know what's wrong with this car, but I'm, I'm hot, I'm mad. I spent all this money in this car, don't just fall dead. But I get out of the car and I, this guy come up to me and, and he, he says, what's wrong with it? I don't, I don't know. He said, pat it three times. I'm like, okay, that don't make sense. Uh, okay, but I did. And it started and I looked for the guy, but I couldn't find him. So I got back in the car and I drove on to work and I got to work. And I wanted, I called my girlfriend, because the place that I picked my car up hadn't opened. And I was about to tell her with some choice words what had happened to me and they could have taken my life. This voice came into my ear and tears came to my eyes. It said, if I wanted you, I could have took you then. And that was like, wow. So... Growing up in church, listening, but not really understanding, it became real to me. Mm-hmm. So I went back to the doctor to go through the treatment that I had to go through. And I remember the doctor asking me, how has your attitude changed? I said, because something told me that I wasn't going anywhere. My life was going to continue I had to learn to be grateful for where I was because money was good and I had forgot. I had lost that spirit of being thankful. Mm-hmm. But it's a spirit that spoke in my head. And I remember talking to my uncle And he said, that was the Lord speaking to you. And that person that told you to pump three times, even though you didn't realize it, was for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You had put all your faith in the fact that you had spent all this money and you thought you would move it, but you were going nowhere without the Lord. Let me set the scene here. Um, As a, you know, I often say that As adults, we are simply living out our childhood. We are unconsciously, most of the time, living out stuff that happened to us as a kid later on in our adult life. And most of the time, we don't even know that we're doing these things. 
Um, I just heard something today that I've never heard before. I am 47 years old, and right here on the set of Studio B, <clears throat> on the set of Studio B, I just heard for the first time that in 1992, my mom got diagnosed with cancer. I've never heard that. She's never shared that with me. And so I want to, <clears throat> I want to, I want to bring that to the point to where I'm at right now. And and one of the things that shapes me uh, even as an adult today, you know, once life presents you with challenges and whatever that challenge may be, you are forced to look at that challenge and make some decisions on what you're going to do. You know, the time to kind of sit there and soak and, okay, woe is me and all that other good stuff. I just wasn't raised like that. And, and, and today was a perfect example <laughs> of what I've said all of my life. Life presents you with a challenge, not what you're going to do. So, my dear, in 1992, my senior year in high school, coming out of high school, you were diagnosed with cancer. You never, ever told me that. I don't think it was something... I think for me, I didn't need a pity party. I I didn't. I listened to what the doctors told me. I never stopped working. But I think sometimes when people, you get diagnosed with certain disease, people have a tendency to try to pat you on the back, tell you it's going to be okay, you just sympathy caught. I didn't know how to function under that. So... God had already in that week from what I went through on that freeway shown me you will see your son graduate. You will see these things you thought you wouldn't see. I didn't need people running around. It was going to be okay. I know it was going to be okay. So <laughs> I just went on with my life. So this this is... Uh, this and, is an aha moment for me. Yeah, because I don't like to be in boxes. I don't want people to say, you know, I've had several operations on my breast, but don't look at me and see what your life going to be. You got to live your life to understand what it would be. This was something I had to do. I could have bowed my head and allowed it to overtake me, or I could overtake it by just pressing forward and that's what I did um, you know my heart is experiencing a couple of palpitations right now um, one is it further solidifies in my heart how strong you are um, as a mother and you know just kind of seeing how you handle life which that attitude which transferred to me that gives me a greater appreciation for it but then two you know, there are things in which, you know, life kind of throws our way and kind of rocks us for a bit. And then we just got to sit back and kind of, OK, now get a plan of attack on what we're going to do here. Twenty eight years later, <laughs> we're in 2020. That was in 1992. If my math is correct, that's 28 years later. Uh, I heard that my mom got diagnosed with cancer. So I want to ask you this. As we were growing up um, in our house, um, I know one of the things that motivated you to succeed is the limitations that people placed on you. Now, I've seen you go from a single mother to a graduate of college to being at the top of your industry, um, you know, just climbing up the corporate ladder. And I've been able to watch this um, all throughout my life. So I know that was a motivating force of when people would put a limitation on you. But what other things did you have in order to motivate uh, yourself to succeed? Like I said, I used to spend a lot of time with my dad. And my dad said you will never accomplish things if you don't have a plan. So I always have had a plan. And he always would say, you you, you got to understand where you want to go. You may have to tweak it, turn it, and sometimes you just got to stop still, stand still, and understand you're not going the way you want to go. Look at what you've done, be honest with yourself, and then put one foot before the, the next and just keep moving. Now, let me tell you about an a, a incident, and my mom will remember this. We was on North Glen. And I came home right off the football practice, and um, I had missed varsity that year. And I came home pretty, pretty upset and yada, yada, yada. 
Um, you know, my mom, <laughs> my mom didn't give me a shoulder to cry on. She didn't say it's going to be all right. None of that <laughs> good stuff. I, I didn't get that pep talk, everybody. Here's what she said. What can you do to get better? And it was one of these kind of things where I'm at the low. Okay, I was really planning on making varsity that year. didn't make it. And then she tell me just simply, what are you going to do now? And it was 20, 30 years later, 31 years later, because that was when I was a sophomore, I can still remember that conversation down the hallway of our house. I can still vividly remember I'm going into my room, you're coming out of your room, and we're crossing each other in the hallway of the house. I specifically remember those words about what are you going to do now. And it's even in those moments that I glean from now and I say, okay, how do I enhance my life with the problems that I'm going through? Now, let me just say this. That's why everybody, I look at life differently. I look at life through a different lens. Yes, there are challenges. Yes, there's stuff we got to do. Yes, there's problems in the world. But the person that is most responsible for where you are is the person looking back at you in the mirror. That's a lesson that I could not get away from early on in life. She just would not allow me to blame anybody or anything for where I was. And I greatly appreciate that. Well, one, one of the things you have to understand, when you don't own responsibility and look at yourself to be accountable for what you've done, your whole life is based on what somebody tells you you are because you look for them to pick you up. You look for them to keep you up. So you always up and you never fall down. You can't just go floating in the skies. You got to look and say, whoop, I failed. But how do I get back up? And people can't pick you up. That's why I try to, you know, I even when I talk to my granddaughters, because I'm so proud of them, because they did what I didn't, was not able to do was graduate from high school with no children. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God! No, but I. But that's encouraged. <laughs> I try to encourage them by telling them, I'm grateful you didn't duplicate what I did. So I'm thankful for that. But I think you have to understand, just because you get beat up don't mean you can't keep going. So if you always, I try to, and I tell you this all the time, I can't surround myself with negative people. My glass is always half full, it's never half empty. So I'm always looking to continue to put into my cup. And if you take it out of it, you drain me. So I remove myself from negative people. Now my mother's a grandmother of four, and she led into that segue, so I'm finna follow it. You know, grandmothers now with their grandkids get to do the the big do over. So you know, now my kids are, you know, reaping all of the benefits of the life lessons learned previously <laughs> up there to it. But I would often call my mom and say, "Hey, I need you to call Bum. I need you to call Markayla. Uh, those are my two kids that are in college right now." Um, you know, just to give them some words of wisdom opposite of their dad. Um, because, you know, we have tried to um, do things differently and trying to instill um, that same sense of um, work ethic that I had put in me. But there's a different era now, Mom. Um, there's a different era that, that you can't blame nobody. You're the only one that is responsible for where you are. That mentality is being pushed to the fringes now. Um, it is not received. And so as you're looking at right now going on in our world, we have in the African-American community, we got 74% of all new births are birthed to single mother households. How would you encourage that single mother right now that may be watching wherever, on whatever platform? Um, life is a challenge for her right now. She's going through some things. She's got some issues going on and she's got these baby or babies. How would you encourage her? What type of advice would you give that person? See, my, my, my mindset, and, I, and it's always been, and I used to talk to some of the young girls that I work with, you have to understand where your mind is. I didn't understand why you were raised in the projects, your grandmother lived in the projects, and your goal was to get an apartment in the projects. All you want to do is be in the project. 
So what I said to younger girls and even to my granddaughters, how can you continue to bring kids into the world that you're not responsible? If you're not taking care of one, what's going to fall out of the sky and help you take care of two? Now you got three, and you're not even 20 years old. So I tell you where you're going. You're going to where you want to be, and that's the project. So there's a, um, this, let me see, how can I frame this in a way that uh, can help people? So you had me at 16 years old, life presented you with a fork in the road. Mm -hmm. And many people are presented with that same fork and, you know, God loves us so much that he'll never force himself on us and allow us to make our own choices. You chose one direction. There are many different people that chose the other direction. Okay. So what was the motivating force? And and I'm trying to I'm trying to and I'm trying to project this so that I understand it. You know, life presents us with challenges and always with particular decisions. And so what was that motivating force that says, I'm going to choose to do better, or in the same sense, you could have made the other decision to not do better. Because remember, I told you younger years, my father said my responsibility was to make my children's life better than my life. So my father had gave me a life. My father was educated. He looked at life. He didn't make excuses for life. And I was determined, and I'm grateful to God because God has allowed me to see that. You, your life is better than my life, and your children's life, if they continue, will be better than your life. So I'm living what my father instilled into me. And what I'm saying is, how could I have done that if I continue to reproduce children? Because children... And I had to learn at a young age, it wasn't a toy. I couldn't put it in the closet when I was tired of, of playing with it. And you know, you, I tell you all the time, I used to call you a germ. And the reason I used to call you a germ was it's like, I can't get rid of this germ. <laughs> That's you know, the germ. He has to go everywhere I go. So, <laughs> I, and, 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 I, and I laugh about it now, but that is the truth. So I can't see how, if you want better for your life, and bringing all that baggage with you, it just holds you down. Now, um, in 2020 has been a year for the ages, and um, I've said here on this podcast on many different occasions and talking to guests and even when I've done solo podcasts that um, this idea of this victimization of black America is something that I have greatly pushed back with. I have greatly, greatly pushed back on the victimization of black people and how bad it is in 2020. While I understand and acknowledge that America has some issues and some stuff that we have to get right, the reason why I take the position that I do is because I have somebody that has gone through that struggle firsthand and have seen those issues um, up close and personal. And while I acknowledge that we still have some issues that we still have to do in 2020, I constantly kick back on this idea that 2020 is like 1950 and, and, and the similarities uh, of such. When I look at what's going on in America and, and how um, black America, specifically in our context, um, we have great potential, mm -hmm. tremendous potential. But in that potential being realized is our, our love for God. Mm -hmm. uh, black people, this is no disrespect to any other race, but black people and God kind of go hand in hand. They are synonymous with one another. How did God help you? I know you touched on it a little bit, but how did God help you to get through those difficult years of your life? I think when you get to, and I, and I always say to people, I was raised in church, and a lot of that was tradition. Uh it was tradition. But after what happened to me in 92, I came to a conclusion that I needed a relationship about this God that I'd heard about, but I knew in my heart I had not surrendered my life to. 
a lot of things I did was tradition. I was taught to do it, and I didn't argue. But when you understand the power of God and how he empowers you, like I said, when you, when you hear me say all the time I was a dreamer, I believe God was placing things in my mind, places I could go and things that I could do. But I couldn't get there because I was trying to get there by myself. So I needed to join. And I think since 1992, when I got that relationship with him, everything just became clear to me. And I think a lot of why we don't succeed is because we too willing. See, the one thing I, and I tell people all the time, I've been black all my life, that's nothing new. So why is being black, why do you keep holding on to that? If you educate yourself, if you change the way you talk to people, if you decide that you wanna sit at the boardroom table, you can't be hands down here, tat tattoos up. You're not welcome at the table. So you have to pull the seat out for you at the table. And in my day, to get to the table, they call it brown nose and da-da-da-da-da. Whatever it took to get to the table. And once I get to the table, I want to be engaged at the table. So if I don't have anything in my mind other than the hood and what's happening on the corner in the club, I won't be at that table. And I can't blame nobody because I'm not at the table. You choose to pull your clothes down. You choose to attach yourself. Those are choices you make. And I've learned in my life, whatever choice you make, always think, what's the worst could happen to me? Mm. And if you can deal with the worst, do it. If you can't, stop and think. I don't need to do that. Now, th that lesson has been instilled in me. Get to the table. Get to the table. You can't you can't change the paradigm. You can't change the situation if you're not sitting at the table. And black America um, has been given tremendous opportunities to get to the table. I thank you um, because, you know, um, looking at you over these years and just watching you. Um, you don't know. I mean, you know, because I tell you this all the time, but you have impacted my life in great ways. I'm a lover of reading. I love to read. Um, when you come up to my office, 70% uh, of those books in my office I have read. I thank God that that has been translated down to, our, <laughs> to my son, your grandson, because uh, he loves to read as well. Because that is a gateway to society. That is a gateway to the unknown. And so I want to thank you because, you know, I've, you know, my dear, uh, <laughs> You know, being 47 years old, I tell the, the the story goes that it was on my 27th birthday when we were at Razoo's, my 27th birthday, that I found out my dad's first name was Cornell. That was my first time even hearing his name, ever. Uh, I'm 47 years old. I've never met him a day before in my life. I've talked to him twice. And in those conversations, it did not bring to pass um, what I was hoping. And so what I've learned to do in, in, in 47 years of living is channel that aggression in a very positive way. And the way that I've done that is to ensure that my four kids would never have to go through what I've done. But in that, my dear, I think I have overcompensated in some areas of my life. Uh, my mom will tell you that I'm very uh, protective of my children, my daughters. Uh, so I have overcompensated in trying to make up for that what I thought was a void. And you did the absolute best job that you could as a single mother raising me up. Uh, I never missed a meal. I never went to bed hungry. I never slept outside. Um, you did a tremendous job. And so I want to ask you this question. Um, you being who you are, um, what is that one piece of advice that you would give, not even to a single mother, not even to a single lady, but just what's that one piece of advice that you would just give to somebody in general about um, about life, how to make it through life? You know, I know you talk a lot about the absence of your father, and you've heard me say, if I couldn't add to it, I refuse to take away. Maybe I misjudge, I don't know. 
I saw no value. So what I say to people, you have to listen to the inner side speaking. You can be a party to something just to be a party to make the, the party better. But if you're not complete, you're living in a dream world, and I deal with reality. I don't know whether my decisions were right or wrong, but in my heart, I felt as though they were right. I tried to fill those voids with people that I had came, come in contact with over the years that I thought could bring value to your life. Not something that I never understood that I've seen over the years that never was progressing. It was degressing. So I would just say, thank you, Jesus, and keep on moving. So people have to really look at their life, understand where they are. And I'm a firm believer that you have to have a plan. And your plan may not work initially. Continue to tweak it. But know where you want to go. And don't be afraid to go. Now, I'm going to tell you two things here. Uh, studio. I've learned two things today. Uh, one that my mom was diagnosed with cancer in 1992. Two, my mom used to always call me germ. <laughs> and now I know why she called me germ. <laughs> now I know. <laughs> call me germ. Because you couldn't get rid of a germ. Okay. All right. Praise God for that. Um, but when you said something about what happened to you in 1992, you know, as my wheels are turning, man, God is just a, a, an amazing God when, you know, the Bible talks about that we have entertained angels and we have been unaware. On November the 14th, 2007, um, I had made a right turn onto Highway 90 um, on my way uh, somewhere right after church and right above 90 and Fondren, um, I had hit the median uh, in my Tahoe and I had flipped my truck three times. My truck flipped over three times and was literally hanging off of the edge of the overpass of 90 and Fondren. Um, the interesting thing about that particular accident is that every single Sunday, all of my kids would jump in the truck with me uh, to head home. Um, but on this day, for whatever reason, well, we know the reason, but none of my kids were with me. And so when my truck flipped over those three times, my passenger side door, which is where Vinchelle would normally sit, was completely ripped off. And my, dry, and my passenger do, uh, door was bent in two. And so where all my kids would have been sitting, those doors were ripped off. As my truck flipped over those three times, window smashing and everything, I can specifically remember that there was no cars coming. And as I crawled out from the bottom, my truck was on the side, I crawled out. From the other side, I saw this gentleman come to me. No traffic on 90, and anybody that knows 90 knows that there's always traffic on 90. But I saw this man come across the road and this man placed his hand on my stomach. I specifically remember this. And he told me to sit down. And when he did that, he told me to rest right there on the rails. My truck is sitting there all busted up. And then here come the cars. They're coming and trying to avoid the accident. When I look up, this man was gone. It's, it's, now, I've gone over this particular scenario in my head a thousand and one times. This is not something that I dreamed. I didn't hit my head. I wasn't hallucinating. I clearly see the man come over there. I clearly felt him touch my stomach. I clearly heard him tell me to sit down. And then when I look up, he's gone. And literally 30 seconds later, an ambulance is driving up. I have on a white suit. This is in my days of white suit, y'all. <laughs> in <laughs> a white suit and they take me down to Memorial Hermann and in the, in the ambulance they're securing my neck put me on the gurney and all that other good stuff I get down to the emergency room and the doctor says wow there's not a scratch on you he says you know your suit's not even dirty and when I think about what you just said about that moment 
when that guy told you to pump the brakes three times. I think about that in my own life, that God was covering me because he has a particular plan for our lives. And that plan will never, ever, ever, ever not come to pass because God has his hand on us. And my dear, today has been a, um, a, a blessed day for me. Uh, We're going to talk offline, everybody, uh, because this is my, my one and only mother that um, I absolutely love dearly uh, with all of my heart, my mind, and my soul. So let me ask you this last question as, as um, we bring this to a head. Um, as a grandmother, you're in a different space now. Mm-hmm. You know, your son is 47 years old. He's got a, a wife and some, some children. What's life like for you now at 63 and a grandmother? Well, I think life for me now is 63, grandma, all this good stuff is a woo, it's good. Uh, I think sometimes when I look at my grandkids, uh, I remember a few weeks ago talking to Vinchelle, and she's telling me, I'm all caught up with my work. I said, well, Vinchelle, how can you be caught up? Maybe you are where the class is, but you're not caught up. So a couple of days later, she called me. She said, Mama, they gave a test, and if I hadn't listened to you, I wouldn't have passed that test. I said, you don't ever get comfortable thinking you caught up. You got to stay ahead. So I don't beat them. I try to encourage them, and I try to tell them that life will send you some challenges. Believe who you are, trust in God, readjust if necessary, but never look down, keep looking up. How much trouble did I cause you? I know people in this arena know you, but I know another you, so I will remain quiet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've already told about the Target story, so you've been in Sunday school, I've told you about Target. Um, my dear, let me tell you, uh, God is a good God. I thank God for you. Um, I thank God for what God is doing in your life. I thank God for that spirit of tenacity that you've given me and, and uh, being able to break through barriers. Um, uh, it has greatly benefited me um, in my own life and my own family. And you are um, a great cause of the way that I think and process uh, information. So, my dear, my mother, my my mother, Deborah Elaine Thomas. Um, I want to thank you for coming on uh, the set of Studio B. It has been an absolute blessing. Um, it's been enlightening. It's been enlightening, informative. Um, there will be some off-air discussions here uh, very shortly. Um, but I want to thank you in, in all seriousness. Uh, my dear, because I have, uh, I've, uh, as I said before, I have watched and gleaned um, the lessons that you've taught. And so I want to give you just a couple of minutes to express whatever's on your heart. Um, encourage somebody right now uh, that may be watching us. What I would say to anyone, number one, understand who you are. Don't try to always be true to the person in the mirror understanding that we all can get off path, but we have to keep looking up. And sometimes even if you have to prop yourself up, you just don't get to the point. And always, if I can say nothing, something to everybody, remove negative people from around you. They will drain you. They will never get you where you want to go. You have to surround yourself with positive thinking people and no matter how bad any situation is learn to laugh at your mistakes and keep that laughter moving and you will keep moving so Miss Deborah Thomas uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us here on the set of Studio B I don't want anybody to ever call me germ again <laughs> uh, I, I will absolutely abhor that name now because I know what it means 
I'm going to call one of my kids Derm <laughs> So God bless you Everybody thank you so much for joining us here on the Status Studio B I want to thank you, thank you, thank you From the bottom of my heart uh, This is episode 26 You guys have been walking with us now for a little over six months Thank you for all of those who tune in All of those who subscribe But I need you to do me a favor I need you to go to our YouTube page And I need you to click subscribe And then click that bell right there to the right To make sure that you don't miss one episode here at Studio B Stay informed, stay encouraged God loves you, we'll see you next week